0: Welcome back to the Curious Catholic Podcast. We're here picking up our Lenten Dante series, which is transmogrified. Is that a good Dantean word maybe that we could add <laughs> into our, our uh, Easter Dante series where uh, Paul Camacho and I are going to walk? No, we can't say walk. We're going to dart about the heavens and the paradiso, um, the third canticle of Dante's phenomenal divine comedy. And uh, it's interesting, Paul, I, um, you know, you mentioned Dante to people and they definitely know of the Inferno. They think there's a purgatory and very few know that he actually makes it all the way to paradise and beyond. So it's it's wonderful to be uh, journeying with you uh, through the Paradiso here. And so we had what, three weeks on the Inferno, three on the Purgatorio of we'll three episodes here on the Paradiso. And um, but before we get into it, I thought you'd be interested uh, during our little Easter hiatus here. Uh, We had a a great review come in through Apple podcasts. I thought I'd uh, just read through it and and let you respond. But um, this is from history bill on uh, April 14th, 2021. Uh, The title is terrific and thought provoking. And it says marvelous discussions. And this is about the podcast in general, but then I guess the Dante stuff. Uh, he continues the episodes on Duns, Scotus and Edith Stein shed new light for me on these thinkers and the recent series on Dante has been nothing short of inspiring. The host has an ideal voice for podcasts. I would disagree. Uh and the, <laughs> and the guests are always great. So that's that's there to your credit. Uh so I thought you'd be interested in in hearing how someone uh has has encountered our, our Dante meanderings.
1: Yeah, that's great, Matt. I um I think you do have an ideal voice for podcasting. I don't know if I do or not, but I'm glad um to hear that, and I think it reaffirms something we said all the way back at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, and that's that this is a poem that um, has always been approached in community. It's always been read in community. It's often been read out loud, and and over the years, um, the you know about seven hundred years, uh, people have been reading the comedy and setting it in community. And I think th- there are a few works besides the Bible that you could say. Um, not only naturally lend themselves towards studies in community and dialogue, but also um, are enriched by that and have been embraced as a kind of these kind of communal endeavors. So it's wonderful to hear that people got have gotten something out of it. And I've been, really enjoyed our time together talking about it. We've made it, we've made it to heaven, although there's still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And um, it actually, <laughs> this morning I was reviewing um, the contest that we're going to speak about today. And my son, Max, he came downstairs. He likes to rise early like I do. And um, he normally reads alone in his room and I'm reading downstairs, but he came down this morning and he asked what I was reading. And the first thing he commented on was what a big book this is. And I was mm-hmm. I was comparing the translation that we have of the Paradiso to the first two canticles. And each one of the books increases in thickness as you go on. Although the Inferno is actually one con- one canto larger than the one canto longer than the Paradiso. And so I was reflecting on why is the Paradiso so much bigger? And it's because not because Dante wrote more, but because our commentator um, Hollander has so much to say. And part of that I think is, you know, he spent most of his life working on Dante and, and much of it doing this translation. So he wants to get everything in before this final, you know, in this final publication. But I also, I also think it's because the Paradiso is an incredibly difficult um, canticle. It's surprisingly difficult, and we'll talk about what makes it so difficult. But here we get to heaven, and it's not easy going. Um, so it's not just that most of us lose the stamina, or maybe we're more fascinated by hell or purgatory. It's also that the Paradiso is a difficult text. It's theologically and intellectually challenging. And um, why Dante would make that be the case, we'll, we'll get into, I think. But so anyway, so here I am sitting with this thick book and um, Max says to me, well, what is this book about? And I said, well, it's about a, a man named Dante. And um, he was a poet and he went down into hell and he went up purgatory and he then he went into heaven. And this book is all about heaven. And he said, Well, what happens in heaven? And I showed him some of the diagrams. I talked about the zooming through the stars as we'll as we'll discuss. Mm-hmm. And then I said, And then you, you see this image here? This is an image of of the Empyrean of the heavenly rose where Dante joins the rest of the saints and they they all sit in this big like amphitheater and they all turn their attention to the inside and they look at God. And then he stopped for a second. He was kind of amazed at this large diagram and the story I was telling, and then he said, So the only thing that happens in this book is that everyone sits there and they look at something that <laughs> I said. I I laughed and I thought to myself, you know, um that's part of what makes the parody so so challenging is in the inferno and in the purgatorio, the drama of the poem is an encounter with uh, with sinners, with stories in the purgatorio with the transformation of the self. There's motion and change. But in heaven, by definition, um, nothing happens in the sense that it's already happened. It's been accomplished. And so you have 33 cantos. And the question is, what is the drama of the paradiso? What happens in heaven? And I talked to my son about how um, you know 20th century Christians like C.S. Lewis and like Tolkien, they really transformed my own adolescent imagination for heaven as being a place of adventure and a place of, um, increasing, um, uh, glory and heightened story. And, you know, the, 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 the glory of the human being is being one that's active and exciting. And, um, as you say, at the end of every podcast, Matt, um, to go further up and further in that comes of course, from the end of the, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, that that's the line that Lewis uses. So. Um, you know, the the reader of the Divine Comedy um, who encounters Dante's heaven um, might be off-put at first by the fact that he he has a kind of drama and a kind of adventure, but it's of a different kind. And we have to say it's of an intellectual kind, um, frankly. <laughs> that's that's what the drama of the Paradiso is about, um, about the transformation of the intellect. And I think we, all people of all ages, are accustomed to living sensibly by their imagination and and there's parts of that that are really good hence the poetry and the images of the divine comedy uh but also as he says at the very beginning of the inferno what we lose in hell is what he calls the good of the intellect and therefore what we gain in paradise is the is the same thing the good of the intellect and so this poem is especially this canticle is a very intellectual poem and um and that's why it's off-putting, I think, on first reading, um, and a little exhausting. We're not used to thinking <laughs> <laughs> intensely and deeply. Um, so, anyway, uh, Max Max uh, took that on board, and then um, he went back to he he had gotten fr- a gift from um, a friend of his whose name is Penelope, who loves for good reason. She loves the odyssey. And he went back to his, uh, this illustrative version of the odyssey instead. So That's Dante I think would be disappointed, but, um, but would understand. Um, <laughs> right. There's a lot more adventure in that book. Um, That's
0: right.
1: Yes.
0: So uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting to think, you know, we, we p- attended to the physics and sort of the geography of hell and purgatory to a good degree. And, I think fittingly, so it's, it's harder. I mean, there is definitely that in the Paradiso, but it's it's just harder for me to even sort of envision, I guess, in a way, it definitely eludes, I think the imagination that we are going out into the heavens now. Right. Um, if we're thinking about the structure of the Paradiso, you mentioned the Empyrean and the outer, at the outer stretches of Dante's universe. Um but it definitely is harder to conceive, and I, I kind of like it. I feel like, you know, probably like Dante, like you're you're unattached to the earthly right now in in his mm-hmm. imagining. And um, as you're saying, it does make things more difficult. But I think, you know, the word that you use that is the refrain for me throughout the Paradiso is the uh, the glory mm-hmm. of God, and not just the glory of God, but um, the glory of the Blessed. Our ability to, our capacity really to experience it, to, to internalize it and to reflect it outward, as we even see at the end of, um, Canto Five with Justinian. <laughs> I love that image. We'll have right. to get to it. Um. And so really the word for me is, is, is glory. So again, very, very Lewis-like. Right. Um, he just keeps coming back. So <laughs> right. Lewis is screaming for our attention. He's trying to crowd Dante out, which is uh, <laughs> very very. I think so. Lewis, he,
1: would be a, he, would appalled, he would be appalled by us uh, saying that. I think um, yeah. it's precisely he thinks in following after Dante that he could have done anything great. But you, let, let's draw a few of these threads together and then let's mm-hmm. talk about the structure of the of you know, the world beyond our world, but just, I'll just read the first um, 12 verses of, of canto one of the Paradiso Mm -hmm. and and tie together the things that you were just saying, Matt, uh, there that were really helpful. Here's how Dante begins this third and final canticle. He says, the glory of him who moves all things pervades the universe and shines in one part more and in another less. I was in that heaven which receives more of his light. He who comes down from there can neither know nor tell what he has seen. For drawing near to its desire, so deeply is our intellect immersed that memory cannot follow after it. Nevertheless, as much of the holy kingdom as I could store as treasure in my mind shall now be the subject become the subject of my song. So you have a kind of traditional um, preamble to a poem. And we've seen this in Dante before. He says at the beginning of the Purgatorio, I've got to raise the level of my art here in order to describe this place. But here, of course, we're in the the highest heaven and in heaven itself. He begins with a mention of the glory of God who moves all things, who pervades the universe. And then he reflects on the very thing that you were just saying, Matt, that, right? He says, anyone who comes back down from there can't know or tell of what he's seen okay so we stop and then we think about this and we realize Dante himself is claiming to have gone up there and to come back down and this is at the beginning of 33 (laughs) cantos, where he's going to tell us what he just said he can't tell us anything about right Mm -hmm. and then he goes on and he says our desire drew us up there we're going to continue to talk about this role of love and pulling us up but he says our intellect is immersed so our memory can't follow after it now, two things are going on with this idea of memory. One is the poet's job is to recall and and bring out of the store of the memory and onto the page what it is that he experienced. And he's saying that's going to be a challenge. But there's a deeper... Um, uh, scholastic and even ancient, reaching all the way back to, um, as you know, Matt, one of my favorite thinkers, um, St. Saint Augustine. St. Saint Augustine said the memory is not just a place where we remember things, it's where we store images. It's the great storehouse of the mind. In many ways, it is what holds the past, the present, and the future together. So it's what we remember, what we attend to now, and what we um, anticipate in the future. And so he's saying all of these things exceed Um, the images that I can hold on to. And so um, my intellect is immersed and grasps something intellectually, but the sensible part of me, the part that holds on to images, can't follow after it. And he says, nevertheless, I'm going to do my best to recall the little bits, the stores, uh, the sort of treasure that I have in my mind and repeat it here. So from the very beginning, we get a hint, two things. Dante is about, is going to attempt to say and recall and sing what no one, right? What what scripture says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, right? And he's about to tell us uh, (laughs) what that is. Uh, uh, As we have said many times in this podcast, a daring and audacious thing to do. The second thing is that Dante is signaling for us that the drama of the third canticle is not a drama of warning like hell, where you, you're you warned against these sins and you're, you learn how to um, uh, overcome them and look away from them. It's not the drama of self-transformation. That was purgatorio, where the will was perfected. And as we saw, where crooked loves were made straight. It's the drama of the mind increasingly needing to become more and more expansive, to be open to this good that radically exceeds it. And so the story of the Paradiso is Dante, the poet, increasingly becoming able to understand more and more of what it is that constitutes God and God's glory. And we as the readers are lifted along with him as he struggles to express what is by definition beyond expression. Right, And that's a really interesting and different um, way of thinking of paradise. It's like It's not static, it's dynamic insofar as we increasingly become more and more capacious. But the thing that we're open to always exceeds us and draws us and calls us. And so um, there's still a kind of transformation, not that something needs to be accomplished, but so that we might be opened more and more to what already is present.
0: Yeah, it's definitely uh, marked by this dynamism and expansion and growth and I like, the you know, the word excessive and, ex, you know, is going to have to keep coming back, right? That it, it all so much exceeds our present capacity, but in its excess, it almost like draws us, you know, it, it expands our own inner potential, you know, our own inner potential for reception. Or maybe right. it makes good on the potential that's there, right, uh, that we're not even aware of uh, at present. Maybe we we, right. we, we we underestimate our ability to... Um, encounter the glory of God, I guess you could say. And in paradise, I think you see what, and this will also be a theme that keeps coming back, you know, humanity deified or deified and, 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 um, you know, theosis is in play here, which is exciting.
1: (laughs) It's it's very exciting. And it's also, it shows you the, if that's true, if in heaven we are, our nature is perfected and elevated, um, then our ability to understand that here and now, and Dante's ability to express it to us, has to, by definition, stretch the very limits of our ability to understand. One of the ways that we see this, which is fascinating, is that in the in the Paradiso, Dante uses a lot of neologisms, new words that he invents, and that um, some of which are only show up in. Um, the divine comedy, but especially only in the Paradiso. And one of the words that we see early on is transumare, which is to transhumanate, to, to trans means to cross or go beyond. So he says, this is what happens to us is we, we, we. Right, this is the, um, so to speak, from the human side of that deification that we're elevated above or made something more than human while retaining um, the perfection of what it is that makes us human. Yeah and he's constantly coming up with words like this um in paradiso to try to you, you feel him almost stretching the language to try to stretch our imagination as well.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at um line 64 in, in in canto 1 he says Beatrice had fixed her eyes upon the eternal wheels and now i fix my sight on her withdrawing it from above as i gazed on her i was changed within as glaucus was on tasting of the grass that made him consort of the gods and the sea. Um, so he kind of introduces that theme right there. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. and, and moving to see how much, you know, it seems to me like Dante's cosmos is definitely one of mediation, right? The glory of God mm-hmm. descending through the various levels. We're going to talk about the choirs of angels, which matters for the the heavenly bodies like, uh, um, and, and all that, but definitely through Beatrice and, um, so that, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I guess we'll have to comment. I don't know if we do it right now or, or later, just this notion of movement. I mean, because obviously it's, it's at the beginning of this contest at the end of the canticle. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. Can you give us a quick sense of, of what is Dante talking about when he's talking about movement of desire and will and intellect? and I mean, there's something that might elude our modern minds.
1: Yeah. Um, we We saw this already... At play in the first two canticles. But um, the, the fundamental, the fundamental idea comes from a, an application of ancient Greek physics, specifically Aristotle's physics to a spiritual reality. So Aristotle thought that all things have weight, and weight is not, as we know, in terms of gravity, where there's one body that pulls another body towards it. Weight is not the relationship between two things, although it is ends up being relational, but it is the kind of motive force of an object to move to where it naturally wants to go. So for Aristotle, anything that um, was earthly wanted to go down, but anything that was of a different nature, like fire wanted to go up. And Aristotle would point out, for example, when you put oil and water together, um, they would separate from one another because they wanted to move to their proper place. So following Augustine, Dante um, takes this idea that um, for a human being, our weight is our love. Um, This is a line that comes um, at the, the final book of Augustine's Confessions. Augustine says, my weight is my love. And remember, for Dante, that means um, uh, love is, as as Virgil says in the beginning of the, I mean, in the middle of the purgatorium, um, love is the cause of every evil and also of every virtue in the human being. Why? Because love is the motion of the self, the desire that turns the self towards some good. And sin is simply turning ourselves away from the highest good and to lower goods instead. The human being, Dante, thinks is incapable of trying to choose anything that she thinks won't make her happy but we often choose things that won't ultimately lead to our final happiness and therefore um as we learned in the purgatorio um the the wherever we direct our loves right will pull us towards them and the problem with hell was we are kind of pulled down more and more by a, a kind of twisted misdirected love and in purgatory, as we started to shed that weight of sinfulness, it became easier to go up until at the very top of Mount Purgatory, the soul was so rightly ordered and the love for the good was so pure, it, there were no longer was an attachment to lesser goods so that Virgil could say to Dante, you can simply follow your pleasure now. You can let your pleasure, your desire for the good, be your guide because you don't want anything less than what is actually good for yourself. We talked about when, in that in that passage how this is an incredible notion of freedom. It's not freedom in the sense that you can just choose whatever it is that you want, as if you're just choosing among neutral choices. It's freedom in the sense that whatever it is that you choose, it will by definition be good since you've oriented your will rightly to God. It's, it's the same um, in, that, in that misunderstood line of Augustine, where Augustine says, love God and do what you will. Um, uh, it's the same thing here, right? It's not a permissive kind of freedom, right? Whatever you do, as long as you love God is fine, but rather the opposite. If you love God truly, then whatever it is you will, will actually be good. So now as we move through heaven, um, as Beatrice keeps saying, Beatrice keeps turning her face upwards as we move through heaven. And um, as Dante looks at Beatrice and Beatrice is looking upwards into the heavens, Dante starts to get this kind of increasing power or ability to see. We're constantly seeing this. He looks into Beatrice's eyes and she looks upwards into the into the light. And he there are these kind of like flashes of inspiration, um, literally inspiration and in breathing, right, into him of the glory of God. And his sight is the power of his sight is increased. And this in turn makes him lighter and sort of draws him upwards. It's almost like god is like a tractor beam right in like yeah. like a star and like a star wars or a, mm-hmm. um star trek right and it's kind of literally the images he's being pulled up um in this kind of vector um where the beauty of the divine and dante's corresponding desire sort of meet and he's being literally elevated up through the stars um by his love that's been perfected
0: yeah that's great, and much of the end of this first canto kind of is poetically expressing that. I love the image of on the great sea of being things of their various natures go into their different harbors and
1: mm-hmm. for, and for the yeah. human
0: and for the human person, it's that elevation in in love of god um and he does make the point as you just did right that um you know we we're on the bowstring directed toward this joyful but- target, but um people can go astray, which is so much of what the first two canticles is about. But, um, that's right. But Beatrice, I love she. she's like, why are you so surprised by all of this? Right. Uh, if I'm correct, you should no more wonder at your rising through the heavens than at a stream's descent from a mountain's peak down to its foot. <laughs> so it's like, right. this is what you're meant for. This is clearly, right. you know, what, what the human person is
1: intended to become. Um, so That's right. And, you know, it's so interesting, both that Dante has this idea that, sort of, if we just acted according to our nature, we would be free and love in this way and go upwards. And a lot of it's our freedom is simply used to keep us from where it is that we want to go. Mm -hmm. It's as if the stream suddenly got free will and was like, nope, I'm not going down anymore. I'm going to go where I want. And the, the point of the comedy is all right, but you're gonna be a very unhappy stream right <laughs> um that's the same kind of thing going on here um I think, and by a kind of um in a kind of nice way we we sort of made our way through Canto one but let but let's step back and talk for a minute Matt about mm-hmm. the the worlds of the stars that Dante is occupying and mm-hmm. what he's journeying through um briefly, as we've said before the the world is a um it's, it's the so-called Ptolemaic universe. Um, and Ptolemy thought that the, um, uh, the Earth is the center of the universe. Um, and so the Earth, you can imagine, the, the kind of point in the middle of the, the, um, these circles, uh, it's the point at the center and the circles of the various planets, which Dante simply calls all of the planets or any heavenly body a star. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and these planets, they circle around or they wheel around the earth. And there are going to be nine of these spheres. Um, they are the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, then the starry sphere, which is all of the other stars. Then this special sphere called the crystalline sphere, or sometimes the the prima mobile. the first first moved sphere, and then beyond all that, and the kind of place that is no place, but not as a lack of place, but a kind of excess of all place, is the Empyrean, the sort of proper home of God, if we could say that God has a proper home since he is in all um, things. And so again, the further we ascend, the closer we get to um, God in God's self, right? And and um, so that's sort of going up and out. But but we should also say that um, the the imagination, the uh, the um, the astronomy of um, the Ptolemaic universe um, had a couple of special features. One was that um, each one of these spheres, um, I keep calling it a sphere, but you you would you might say, okay, well we have you imagine that the moon is orbiting around the Earth. Okay, and each one of these planets is um, imagined to be orbiting around the Earth in a perfect circle. But why is it able to move in a perfect circle? We look up in the sky and we see that it's transiting in a perfect circle. Um, the the imagination of and the science for the physics, right, is that each one of these planets um, or heavenly bodies was kind of like like a pearl or the kind of central focus but it was located within a um an actual sphere like a like a ball right that was um that uh, that had that planet at its kind of furthest most most radius from the earth and so it actually was a kind of um what do we want to say like a level or a boundary that was contained. And then when you move to the level of the next planet that was surrounding, it, it was like a another ball that was um, surrounding the previous one. So you have kind of like nesting dolls that are going out, um, right? The Earth at the center, and then this, the sphere of the moon, and then the sphere of Mercury, and you keep you would keep going up and up. And the reason that this is important is because if we think about it from the other side, um, that is from the Empyrean, which is on the furthest outreaches coming back in, then um, something really important comes into play. And that is that the stars cascaded um, or or kind of passed down their power so that God allows each outer sphere to be a kind of governing or um, ordering principle for the more inner spheres, and there, th- because we're out in the heavens, um, the universe is not the the heavenly spheres are is not a place that's devoid of intelligence, but instead each one of these spheres has a corresponding angel or hierarchy of angels that actually has a kind of providential control and intelligence and ordering of its sphere and a passing down of the kind of orders of nature to the spheres below it. So the picture we actually get is one in which God's providence, God is working providentially, but he isn't stingy, so to speak with his power. He, he, he um, enables and empowers um, this kind of cascade of influence from the outermost reaches down, down, down into each one of the spheres and so what we get is this vision of hierarchy, right? As you go upwards, you get closer and closer to God, and so the souls that we encounter on each level will sort of be more and more perfect. But also at the same time, one of sharing, right? We have hierarchy and cooperation, community sharing, where um, there is um, each each soul has its place, but each of them are in heaven and it are happy for. The place that they have, and they receive something—the power from the sphere above—and they pass down something, a kind of provenance, control, and grace to the level below them. And this is how Dante spiritualizes the physics of his day.
0: Mm. Wonderful. Yes, the, this theme of mediation, right? It's interesting. Right? Dante doesn't encounter Christ directly throughout the Comedy yet; right? it's through Virgil and right. Beatrice and and all the other blessed that we're going to meet. Um, and so, right, we have on each heavenly body a certain grouping of the blessed. And so we'll get to right. know them. And although they make it clear that this is just for Dante's sake, they don't actually, they aren't scattered about the heavens. They all reside with God. But for Dante's understanding, we meet them uh, group by group, individual by individual. And I mean, I don't know. Canto 2, it's, we're up on the moon. There's something there's something about shadows and something about heaven, you know, the glorified body. I think, but I think we can move on to five. Talk about. I think we will. can. I'll
1: I'll just let's five is a lot more exciting. But let's just pause a canto two for just, just half a second. Only in the following mm-hmm. for the following reason, um, readers who come Paradiso one is mostly about Dante saying I can't say anything about this, but I've got to anyway, right? And he's telling right. us about the limits and there's kind of this beautiful idea of of the soul moving by its love. Paradiso 2 begins by him saying, look, if you want to follow me, get in, get in your little bark. This is how he described his own poem in the beginning of the Purgatorio. Now he says, follow in the wake of me, but you should know that we're going to get into some serious theological waters. And I actually don't recommend you read this unless you're ready to do some serious theology, right. which, is, which is like you say, okay, Dante, if you say so. And then the rest of the canto... This, the first level of heaven, right, is given over to this really technical, really difficult discussion about why there would be these spots in the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like this strange, scholastic disputation kind of argument. And Beatrice is really holding forth about these like really abstruse sort of um, uh, things about physics and, and uh, potencies and actualities. And even for even for with all the commentaries, it's still just really difficult to follow. And you think, why are you doing this to us, Dante? I don't right. know, do you have any thoughts, uh Matt, about why Dante is subjecting the reader to this early on in the Paradiso?
0: Not entirely, but here's uh <laughs> I'll venture one guess, maybe two. One, I think he does need to get us thinking about embodiment in the heavens. Mm-hmm especially in light of the glorified body and the resurrection of the of the -hmm. the body and Mm -hmm. i think more generally aside from all the specifics of um (laughs) the physics of beatrice's understanding of how bodies operate in the heavens i think what we have is dante can venture his best guess it's sort of like reason here on earth tethered and limited and you know all the fragmentary knowledge that we have and then and perhaps beatrice is just showing us where even in the heavens reason will be purified and informed and Mm. given a certain clarity of understanding of even how things like the shadows on the on the moon work so that was the only thing that came to mind why he might do that i don't know what are your thoughts
1: yeah i realized as i asked the question i asked it in my sort of academic pedagogical like I know, I think I know what the answer is. I want to know if you know what the answer is. But I actually, yeah, that's that was unintentional because I I don't really know either. I'm not sure anyone knows. Um, yeah. I mean, I think what you say sounds plausible. I thought sometimes that Dante is like, okay, I, I was serious. Like here's some here's here's what you could expect, and then he, you sort of it's almost like it's a it's almost like a riddle or a test at the beginning of the Paradiso to see if you'll hang with them mm-hmm. and 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 be able to go further. Um, I think the, I think the other thing that's really interesting is that Dante is going to um, actually, we're going to see Dante is going to be tested in his declarations of the faith and of his understanding of things as he goes through Paradiso, but by by the evangelists among other people, Um, he's going to be tested on his faith, his hope and his love. He's going to be tested on whether he, can articulate the meaning of the creed. It's this really interesting kind of, right. The vision of heaven is, is um, that you get an exam. (laughs) It's really really odd. And I think, I think it only makes sense if we really think, look, the intellect is perfected by being active by doing this kind of work. And maybe this first, this, it's the second canto, but this first sphere and this thing about the moon and thinking about, the physics of the place is a kind of like warm up for the um, for the mind, right? A kind of like little exercise to get the mind going, and then to soon enter into deeper waters um, and to sort of start exercising that highest part of what it is to be a human being. And if we find it so challenging, maybe that's in part because we um, are not used to making the highest part of ourselves. You know, we're not used to identifying ourselves with what's highest in ourselves. Mm-hmm. But those are thoughts that are just as kind of speculative and spotty. Um, But if we, if we make it past Paradiso (laughs) two, we we get, we get into some of the good stuff. um, That's right. uh, So to speak. And like you said, Paradiso Paradiso five, it's great about free will. So take, take us where you want to take us, Matt.
0: Yeah. I love one through 12. Again, the themes of glory and sight and light and love. And um, I I love this idea of love as. Something that enables us to see a certain epistemology of love, mm-hmm. that almost like it it reveals like the vision of love, like true care and concern for something allows it to reveal itself to us. But yes. then later we get um, was it nineteen to the theme of three will free will right? Mm-hmm. He says the great mm-hmm. or Beatrice is saying Beatrice is saying the greatest gift that God and His largesse gave to creation, the most attuned to His goodness. And that he accounts most dear was the freedom of the will, all creatures possessed of intellect, all of them and they alone were and are so endowed. now this is really interesting because now we're going to get into a consideration of vow taking mm-hmm. right the the willed, the free um confining and constraining of one's will um, right, and so it's such a great paradox um you know our ability to freely limit ourselves, um, but he takes this very seriously. Maybe a way that would surprise a modern reader: like, why does he care so much about promise making and vow taking and rashness of vows and the stupidity of that? And mm-hmm. how can you how can you replace the content of the vow that you made? Well, only if it's weightier. Um, right. Although although <laughs> the, the the church with its keys of mercy can uh, if, if the course of action is undertaken in the right way, relieve someone, although I'm I'm a little spotty on my understanding of where he's going with that. Um, but what, what, what draws you, um, in regarding this consideration of freedom in the bow?
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you, you said it really nicely. I, I, I think, um, let's return to that idea of love giving us Sight or perfecting our sight. I, that's a crucial idea. And I think the notion of freedom of the will, notice in the lines you read, um, this is at line 22, um, th- this greatest gift, that, it's called the freedom of the will. And Beatrice says, All creatures possess of intellect, all of them and they alone were and are so endowed. So again, we're, we often separate the will from the intellect as if. The intellect was useful, like a kind of faculty that we have for understanding things, right? And then the will is the part of us that chooses, and um, they don't really have anything to do with one another. But again, our, our picture of love um, shows the way in which that that just can't be true, right? The the If we love the right thing, then we understand better what is truly good. And conversely, by understanding rightly what the good is, It's not just that then we will have more options before us to choose. It's also that by grasping it um, better, our will is drawn towards it more in one and the same act. So uh, I think that this notion of freedom as being oriented towards our right the, the right good also helps us to make sense of why he then goes on to talk about vows. Dante has a specific thing in mind. He has, he has in, in particular, the vows of obedience and chastity and poverty of those who take religious vows. But we could broaden the discussion here to, to just think about a, na- a natural human promise. Okay. A, a sort of promise before God. And there have been philosophers right in the history of philosophy who have said that making a promise actually is impossible for a human being because we would freely will to annihilate our freedom, right? We bind ourselves and therefore we restrict our future selves. And if we do it freely, then we're performatively contradicting ourselves, right? But notice that in that idea of freedom, the idea of freedom is that we should be able to choose anything at all that we want, and therefore, binding ourselves to something or, or um, uniting ourselves to something and in a fixed way seems to be a restriction that re- eliminates our freedom. But again, think, think again about what Dante and hear what Beatrice is saying about what freedom is. If freedom of the will consists not in our ability to choose anything, although that's an essential ingredient of it, our ability to actively involve ourselves in our choice, but instead our ability to adhere to what is truly good to, for ourselves then we could think instead of promising is actually the ultimate human act, one in which we, we bond or unite ourselves to a future good because of or through an act of love, right? We pledge the whole of ourselves and any time that we make a promise. And this actually, far from restricting our freedom, is the highest expression of it. It's a, um, it's a way of imaging the eternal so to speak, in the temporal, right? It's a collapsing um, the the future and the present into a kind of um, uh, attentive and loving um, unity, if I could put it that way. Yeah, and reminds, I think that it's just an amazing view.
0: It reminds of me of, um, yes, absolutely, um, A Man for All Seasons, that scene where hmm. in the prison cell Thomas Moore is... Um, you know, talking about making a pledge or you know making the oath of supremacy to Henry that he holds himself in his hands, and if he if he right. were to 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 go through with the oath in in an in inauthentic way, his self would almost be slipping
1: through his fingers. Right. Um, That's exactly what Beatrice says to Dante. Right. When you when you make a vow, you promise yourself. So you you say, "Well, I'll just I'll just do something else instead." But she says, "Well, what can what possibly?" what possible good gift could be better than the, than the entirety of your free will, which God, God holds as the highest in all of, in all of what he has created. It's a a beautiful kind of, um, what what do we want to say? A kind of reworking or um, a a kind of recentering of our notions of what counts as freedom and the glory of, of the human being.
0: Yeah. Um, I also like the notion that within the vow, and this is maybe departing a bit um, within the vow, there's a certain type of freedom that isn't, External that you don't find outside the vow, whether it's the marital right. vow or religious vows, right? You, there's a freedom to love in a new way within the vow that you don't have um, prior to making it. So
1: that's right. I mean, this is the paradox of being a human being. Um, all other lesser beings, they simply glorify God by being what they are, but they don't do it or they do it maybe only in kind of like a shadow. Uh, um of our own freeway of loving God, right? And so, human beings, as we've said before in this podcast, in this series, we can fail to be what it is that we are, right? I mean, a lot of the Inferno was dramatizing and externalizing the ways in which we fail to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say we fail to be human, I mean we don't actually we don't actually live for the things that we're made for. We don't live and love God or each other um in the same way that the stream that goes downwards down the mountain in just in so doing it does what it's supposed to do or the dog by sitting at my feet right acting like a dog is fulfilling its purpose and tell us an end and it thereby glorifying god but the human being as free can choose other than what actually would glorify god and make the human being happy at the same time though and this is the crucial idea only the the human being in his freedom is more actual, more present, um, and therefore, in the vow, in the pledging of the freedom, is sort of more actual, more luminous than um, all of the being that does it, so, so to speak, naturally or without without that kind of um, free will. Mm-hmm. Speaking
0: of becoming more luminous, maybe we, we, after this consideration, they make a quick jump. So we're mm-hmm. leaving, leave the moon, right, um, right. and get to Mercury, um, and so it's interesting, right? Beatrice's joy, he's saying, this is around ninety four, radiates um, and adds to the planet's luminosity. So it's almost like a self-illuminated uh, heavenly body. Uh, but mm-hmm. then we, we we get the dynamic that's going to keep on happening. It happened throughout the other Canticles as well. But a group is going to approach our pilgrim and his guide. But here it's the blessed. And so it, 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 I love the way he describes them. You know, there's so much joy and there's so much light um, and a certain radiance. And so in the next canto, we would hear more from Justinian. But I really love this notion of um, and this is toward the end um, that he's going to address this is a 130. I might be getting too far ahead of us, but just uh, there's this notion that like he's he's going to speak to this, this blessed soul, right? Uh, that had been the first to speak, which then became more brilliant than before. As the sun, once its heat has gnawed away, the dense and tempering vapors so sort of like a cloud between the viewer and the sun. But now it hides itself in its own excess of light. Now that the cloud, the, the vapor is gone between you and the sun, you can't take it all in because there's so much of it, right? So it's hidden in its own mm-hmm. excess, Mm-hmm. So with increasing joy, the holy form concealed itself from me within its rays and thus concealed yeah. it made response. So I, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over again. But Dante just describes the indescribable so well. Um, right. And I, I love that image of excess and I mean, I keep, I, again, I keep saying it, but it's a, it's a theme yeah. that's so profound to me. And it's so transformative it, yeah. of our vision of paradise. Like we're just going to keep it's, getting it's more perfect. and more.
1: Right, it's profound and and transformative. I, I think, Matt, precisely because it's true. I mean, it speaks to us of something. And Dante, we could say, the Paradiso is is here a poet of excess. Um, that that would be a good title for him in this in this poem. And ev- and everywhere we go, the thing that's amazing is he keeps outdoing himself in his descriptions. Um, I I too love this idea of of light and and excess and increase, right? And um, you have it in this individual figure who when Dante speaks to him, um, it's like Dante addresses this soul and then the soul upon being addressed glows brighter, right? Mm -hmm. Increases in glory. And um, why? Because he's about to respond. And so there's this mutual gifting or the the attention which is which is after all a kind of love mm-hmm. right that passes between them increases the glory of these beings who were lacking no glory who, who were lacking nothing and yet right because they're here in heaven and yet as this is an amazing line so it, it's it's very famous in in the paradiso uh you you'll remember in hell the group's um, didn't even notice that Dante were there and he had to threaten them or cajole them in order to speak to him in purgatory. They would rush to him. They were amazed by his body, but they also asked for his prayers. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they told of their stories with a kind of humility in heaven. What we have is, um, a welcoming of the community that mm-hmm. all echo this line. It's line 105, um, it says, um, Dante says, I saw a thousand splendors, these are the, the souls, drawing towards us, and from each one was heard, and this is the line, oh, here is one who will increase our loves. Mm-hmm. There's that language again of increase or excess, right? So what are we imagining? We have these souls who have all it is that a soul is destined for and longed for, and yet um, in the presence of another saved soul and the mutual giving back and forth. That, or let's put it another way the addition of a soul in heaven rather than decreasing or sort of like spreading out the good, like there's only so much pie to go around and now there's one less slice. Mm -hmm. um, It's the opposite. Um, St. Augustine has this amazing line. He says, Anything that diminishes upon being shared is not worthy of loving, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And by contrast, the only things that we ought to love as worthy of our eternal desire are things that increase when we share them. What kinds of things does Augustine have in mind? Things like truth and wisdom and beauty and friendship, right? These are things that increase upon being shared because they're not subject to that notion of, of acquisitive self-desire, um, right? And self-fulfillment. Instead here, when another is increase in their joy it also increases my joy right and that's how the souls greet him here in in heaven um it's it's amazing it gives us a image of community um here again within this kind of hierarchy of heaven that welcomes because the welcoming of the other is like an amplification and reflection of one's own joy
0: yeah that's wonderful and i think a really good way of setting the stage for our further Uh, Traversing of the heavens So I think You know We did a good job Kind of laying out What we're doing in paradise And (laughs) How it's going to go I think next time around We can I want to meet St. Francis And uh, Uh I guess we'll have to meet St. Dominic as well I mean (laughs) surprised they let them in um uh, no and as next, you'll see
1: as we'll see as a little preview they they yeah. each love each other more than they love themselves so um, that's, right. that's the heavenly way that's right um, and then yeah. we
0: can consider the resurrection of the body this next time around as well which uh i, I love that scene so we're, we're gonna have to have to consider that as well
1: um well but, i'm looking forward to it and to going further up and further in with you matt
0: That sounds great, Paul, and uh, we'll have to uh, have everyone else along with us. So until that next time that we meet in paradise, let's continue journeying further up and further in.